Section 9 of From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. Edited by Olive Beaupre Miller. The Story of Alfred the Saxon. In the ninth century, when England had long been split up into numerous petty Saxon kingdoms, usually at war with one another, there suddenly came plundering her out of the north piratical bands of Norsemen whom the English called Danes. These were a fierce and warlike people, pagans still, worshipping Woden in the fastnesses of the Northland, and they bore down upon the English coasts in long narrow ships, with rows of shields along their sides, and high curved prows carved like beasts. Ravens, dragons, dolphins, eagles, ploughed through the foaming waves, and boldly poked their beaks up on the gleaming sands of Britain. Then swarms of barbarians sprang to the shore, in their savage headdresses bristling with horns, and they burned and plundered and pillaged, while the Saxons fled terror-stricken before them. At first the Danes came but to steal, and made off once more when sated with spoils, but as time passed they began to stay and settle in various parts of England. Then the Saxons, forced by the power of their savage foes to drop their own paltry differences and unite in one body for defence, acknowledged, one and all, Ethelred, king of the West Saxons, as their overlord. Ethelred fought right nobly against the Danes, yet even so the wild Danish chiefs, Ingwar and Hubba, sons of Ragnar Lodbrok, that gigantic scourge of the north, took Edmund, king of East England, prisoner, demanded of him that he forsake Christianity and bow his neck to their yoke, and when Edmund stoutly refused, they bound him to a tree, taunted him with cruel jests, shot at him with arrows, and finally cut off his head. Against marauders of such a sort England had need of a real hero, and as Ethelred, shortly after this event, in the year 871, died of wounds received in battle, it was well that there came to the throne in his stead the best and wisest king who ever ruled over England, Alfred the Saxon, called Alfred the Great. Now Alfred from a child had been a remarkable boy, sturdy, vigorous, intelligent. When he was but four years old his father had intended making a journey to Italy, to visit the Bishop of Rome, but, being at the last moment prevented from going himself, whom did he choose from amongst all his sons, one of whom was a young man grown, to go to the bishop in his stead, but Alfred, the youngest, a mere babe. And off went the little fellow with a mighty escort of nurses, servants, and churchmen, over the sea to Flanders in an open boat rowed by oarsmen. From Flanders he proceeded on horseback, or else perhaps swung in a pannier at the side of a horse, through the heart of old Gaul, stopping now at some warrior noble's castle, now at a convent, now in a walled town, lingering for a time at the splendid court of Charles the Bald, king of the western Franks, and thence on over the towering snow-capped Alps, by the pass of St. Bernard, into Italy. Northern Italy at that time was a place of most unsavoury repute by reason of the number of bandit nobles who infested it, but straight through their midst, by some means or other, went the child and his attendants, and came marching at length in safety beneath the great gates of Rome. Thus, before he was five years old, Alfred had made a journey tremendously long and difficult even for men in such wild days as these. 
But when this much-travelled youngster was once more at home in England, in the low, rambling, draughty building where his father held court, though he knew a vast deal of the world, he was still unable to read. This fact was perhaps not remarkable in one so young, but what is truly remarkable, his older brothers, well-grown youths, were likewise unacquainted with letters, so little was learning cared for in those early days in England. But it chanced one day that Alfred and his brothers came strolling together into their good mother's room, a handsome chamber with rush-strewn floor, and walls hung with splendid tapestries. Osburga, in a long loose robe, with full flowing sleeves, sat in a cushioned chair, with lion's heads at the arms and lion's claws at its feet. On her lap she held a volume of Saxon poetry, and her sons, in boyish tenderness, came crowding up around her. Since printing was as yet unknown, the book was hand-illumined, that is, richly painted with bright and beautiful letters. All the brothers cried out with admiration of the volume, and the good mother, hearing their words of praise, said smilingly, "'This book is truly a treasure. I will give it to that one among you who first learns to read.' Thus spurred on, little Alfred sought out a tutor without delay, and applied himself so diligently and persistently to conning of letters that he won the volume. Now, when Alfred's father died, the boy, at that time grown a youth, served under his older brothers right loyally for all his superior talents, faithfully rendering unto them, so long as they lived, implicit obedience. But he was only three and twenty years of age when the death of Ethelred left him king. The country at that time was well-nigh panic-stricken for fear of the Danes. Many a Saxon thane, having deserted his home and fled overseas to escape them, and those who were left behind were far too disorganized to offer solid resistance. Yet the courage and energy of the young king lent spirit to the disheartened people, and soon he was administering many a sound rapping to the marauders. But the Danes, under their fierce leader Guthrum, were never to be relied on. No matter how faithfully in some hour of defeat they might swear a mighty oath never to plunder or pillage again, they broke their promise as soon as it suited their purpose. After one most signal defeat they swore by the sacred bracelets they wore, supposedly a most binding oath to their pagan hearts, but in no time at all they were at their old tricks as before. During this period Alfred fought not only on land, but he defeated the Danish host also in a mighty battle at sea, the first naval engagement ever won by the English, who have since made so much of their fleet. Thus matters went till it came to the year 878, the saddest and yet most glorious of all Alfred's reign, when the Danes swarmed into Wessex in such multitudes that, as the old Saxon chronicle says, "'Mickle of the folk over sea they drove, and of the others the most deal they rode over, all but the King Alfred.' He, with a little band, hardly fared after the woods and on the moor fastnesses. With but a slender band of faithful followers, the young king found himself almost deserted, hiding in the marshes and wild bogs of Somersetshire. Yet, as he was never puffed up or overconfident in victory, so was he never cast down in defeat, but surely, persistently, steadfastly as ever, laid his plans to drive the foes from the land, and this from no paltry motives of personal ambition, but to save and succour the people over whom he felt that God had called him to rule, thereby entrusting to him a mission from which he could never turn. 
It was during this period that he wandered one day alone to a cowherd's lonely hut, and there sought for shelter. The cowherd's wife, not knowing who he was, but taking him for a common vagabond, admitted him to a place by her hearth, whereon she was baking some little cakes. Being soon after called out of the hut on some errand or other, she roughly bade her guest watch her cakes and see that they did not burn. The king smilingly undertook to obey her, but he was working at repairing a bow and arrow, and his thoughts soon travelled far away to his harried people and their mighty need. When the cowherd's wife returned, the cakes were burned to a cinder. "'Now, now, idle dog,' scolded the woman, never dreaming she was scolding her liege lord and king. "'Couldst thou not even watch the cakes? Thou wouldst have been glad enough to eat them.' Soon after this the great Danish jarl Hubba appeared in Devonshire with his wonderful raven banner that had been woven by the three daughters of Ragnar Lodbrog in a single afternoon, and was believed to be enchanted. The great raven, it was said, rose up and flapped his wings before every battle wherein the Danes were to be victorious. Yet the men of Devonshire, meeting Hubba right stoutly, administered to him a sore defeat, and took from him the raven banner. The loss of this standard greatly discouraged the Danes, and news of the victory was a source of much comfort to Alfred in his hiding-place. About Easter time Alfred had gathered together a sufficient number of men to build a fortress of wood and earthworks on a little hillock or island in the midst of the marshes. The place was called Athelney, and from here he could attack such foraging parties of Danes as roved the countryside. From here also he secretly issued forth by night in the guise of a minstrel or glee man, and entered all alone into the camp of the enemy to learn how numerous they were, how they were armed, and what was the true temper of their leader. He was received as a strolling glee man, and ordered to sing while the Danes caroused in the very tent of Guthrum himself. There he sat alert, with eyes wide open, stoutly singing to the music of his harp, surrounded by those who, had they but dreamed who he was, would have had his head on the instant. Now when Alfred knew himself strong enough to attack the enemy, he caused a huge bonfire to be built on a hill near Athelney, where the red flames streaking the sky could be seen throughout the three lower counties, wherein dwelt the English, but were hidden by rising ground from the camp of the Danes. To him then gathered all his men, not many in numbers, but deeply devoted and determined in spirit. At Ethendun they fought a mighty battle with the Danes, putting their foes to flight, and pursuing them hot on their heels to their fortress. There they maintained a siege for fourteen long days, at the end of which time the Danes were forced to surrender. Alfred had his enemies now entirely at his mercy, and might have repaid Guthrum's frequent treacheries with like cruelty, but in Alfred's heart was blent ever the most steadfast firmness with a broad mercy and tolerant charity. Preferring to win his enemy rather than annihilate him, he stipulated that he give hostages and become a Christian, whereby he had hopes that the Dane might be led more faithfully to keep the covenant, which he now made, than when all the surety he gave was merely pagan oaths. Three weeks later came Guthrum with thirty men that in his host were worthiest, to Wedmore, near Athelney, where Alfred had a house. There, beneath a huge wide-spreading oak, the savage, stern old pagan, and his thirty bearded warriors, all boasting descent from Woden, knelt before the cross, and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and all the ideals for which Christianity stands, and it is evident that this act in truth wrought some change in the heart and spirit of Guthrum, 
since he appears never again to have broken the covenant, whereby he promised to remain within that territory allotted him in North England, and forever to leave off harrying Wessex. Now for twelve splendid years England saw peace. The king, so bold and courageous a warrior, was anxious to lay aside the sword, and it is remarkable that one so able in war fought never a battle of conquest, but always solely in defence. And now that he had saved England from her foes, he began organising the various activities of the land, bringing order out of chaos, and proving himself greater even in peace than in war. He had a definite system of laws worked out where no system had been before, and himself saw that these laws were administered, thus converting a country recently overrun by bandits into one so safe and secure that the saying was, "'Treasures of gold and silver might be left lying on the streets,' and no man would dare to touch them. He rebuilt fortifications, monasteries, churches, and above all else, he was so interested in the advancement of education in a land where before had been naught but the darkest ignorance, that he invited to England the greatest scholars of the age, and established a school in his court for the sons of Saxon nobles. He himself spent every spare moment studying and translating books from Latin into the Anglo-Saxon, thereby laying the first foundations of a real English literature. His broad and active interest in greater knowledge prompted him to send Saxon monks to the far-off Christians of India, and a Saxon whaler to explore all the northern countries. He gave, too, the greatest encouragement to artisans, goldsmiths, jewellers, and the like. Recently there was found near Athelney a beautiful jewel, the figure of a man holding a flower in each hand, wrought in coloured enamel on gold, under a plate of rock crystal, and on the rim are the words, Alfred may het gericken, that is to say, Alfred had me worked. The keynote to all the king's unselfish persistence in doing good was his simple, sincere, devout Christianity. Always the thought of God stirred him to noble deeds, and his days were filled with the joyous, intelligent activity of one whose whole life was consecrated to the highest ideals of Christianity. In the service of his people, in devotion to all that was fine, he wasted never an hour. The better to gauge how time passed in a day, when as yet there were no clocks, he had candles made, each to burn four hours, and notched with four notches at regular intervals. Thus six of these candles told off for him the twenty-four hours of the day. And as he found his candles often flickering and burning unevenly in the draughty rooms, he next contrived a little case of wood or horn in which they could be set, which is said to have been the origin of the first lanterns. In the last years of Alfred's reign the Danish pirate Hastings sought to harry the land once more, but now so well ordered and strong had the Saxons grown that Hastings was defeated with little difficulty. In the struggle with him Alfred showed the same wonderful depth of charity that had characterized him before. Once the king captured a stronghold wherein he found the wife and children of Hastings, but he did them no harm whatever, letting them go again in safety. In 901 Alfred died, leaving the England he had found in such panic well organized, strong, and free. Never before had the world seen a ruler who lived solely for the good of his people. Practical, energetic, patient as he was, always just and temperate, always genial and lovable, always deeply religious and profoundly intelligent, Alfred embodied as no other man has ever done 
all that is best and most lovable in the English character. And so is King Alfred rightfully called Alfred the Saxon and Alfred the Great. End of section 9. Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on Tuesday, May 13, 2014, in San Diego, California.